Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. And so I have a phrase, something that I talk about a lot called having the difficult conversation. And this is what managers and executives and experts are so bad at doing, and I don't understand it, but acknowledging from the beginning, from the get-go, this is going to be a difficult conversation. This is going to be difficult for me. This is going to be difficult for you. And then dot, 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 whatever follows after that. And there's something about, and you know, I'm not super hippy-dippy about putting everybody in that place of acknowledgement and that place of authenticity and that place of transparency that, no, we're not glossing over this. No, we're not even going to try to pep talk our way out of it. We are going to sit and acknowledge that we as a team, organization, company, whatever, are facing a crisis. And that, to me, is the first step of any crisis plan. Yeah, I I think the support to what Jewel just said is, you know, when I tap into crisis management, I can easily go back to, you know, my days working in FEMA. What I've always learned is, you know, people aren't afraid of the unknown necessarily. They're afraid of the known coming to an end. In other words, I used to have electricity. Now I don't. I used to have a job. Now I don't. So what leaders need to do, what companies need to do, is they have to replace the fear of the unknown with information. And that goes a long way in managing expectations. So just I'm thinking you know, disaster management. If someone loses power, they will be able to handle someone telling them you will not have power for three weeks over we don't sure we're not sure when it's gonna come back on. So people are resilient. People can handle the tough stuff, but what they can handle is when people don't tell it to them or when people don't share it. So leaders, and it's a natural reaction to not scare. We don't want to. We don't want to. Um, we don't want to scare our customers. We don't want to scare our investors away. We don't. You know. So we're just going to keep the information to ourselves. But it's very counterintuitive. You, the more information you put out there, the safer. You know, in the crisis sense, you will be. The people need information. They thrive on it. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West, to break down the latest in COVID-19 communications perspectives. Absolutely. It's really good to be here with you and uh, hoping all of our listeners out there are faring well. I'm really excited that we have two women joining us, each of whom have their own communications consultancies and doing a lot on behalf of the profession to really lift all of us up in best practice. And so both of them have been fairly longtime colleagues of mine, mostly in the social media space. I've been following both of them, whether they're blogs or their social media posts. And I thought that they would both have excellent observations to share with us today. And our guests are, without further ado, Julia Angeline Joy and Molly McPherson. And today we'll be talking about COVID-19, public relations best practices, and public relations fails in light of this unprecedented pandemic. 
Welcome, Julia and Molly, to Ms. Interpreted. It's great to have you both with us. Thanks so much for the expertise and insights you bring to this conversation. Just want to ask first, we've been asking everybody, how are you doing right now? How have you been faring these past few weeks? Julia? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, too. And I personally am faring very well. Uh, I live in a small town. We were ahead of the curve, and our mayor jumped in, and we're flattening the curve. And having worked from home, being a work-from-home person isn't strange for me. A few family adjustments. And so mostly I've just been reaching out to people to see how I can support them. Professionally, it's been a little bit more tumultuous. This has been very interesting to watch, um, some heartbreaking stories, and I just feel like I've been glued to the news pretty much 24-7. Yeah, yeah, I think we all kind of feel that way. What about you, Molly? How are things in your world right now? Well, first, I want to thank you for making it your first question because, you know, we all share a lot of social circles together online. And we're, today is the first day I'm starting to feel the pain of other people and the anxiety that they're feeling. You know, we are all in the business of public relations communications, and it's our job to make sure that we show the sunnier sides of things and we have plans and preparation. But when it's one of our own feeling it, I feel it. So I I guess from a family point of view, I have four teenagers in the house. I'm now working from home. It is definitely life interrupted. I had the best year of business going and I had all these bookings for the next four months. And within three days, I had lost the college tuition's worth of business. Um, And, but I, but I didn't panic. I think it's just the crisis manager in me is I just knew I needed a pivot needed to happen um, while we were home with the kids. And I've, I've tried to be the, the optimist in this, um, but just like Jules, I am not a coronavirus denier. Uh, I believe that it is here. I follow guidelines. I believe in quarantine, flattening the curve. So it's kind of at my mentality is the rising tides raising all boats. Yeah. Well, and I think that all of us can commiserate with all of that that you've just enumerated. And as as we're about to get into this conversation here about some of the PR impacts of this and what companies are doing right and wrong, I'd love for our listeners to learn more about both of you before we get into this. So for benefit of our listeners, I'd love to have each of you tell a little bit more about yourselves, about your careers. And I originally connected with both of you on social media and following your commentary on the profession which incidentally, I continue to enjoy and gain so much from seeing most every day when I'm seeing things that you're posting, so much good content that you're generating and observations that you have. So Molly, you know, turning to you first, would love to hear more about your consulting practice. And thank you, incidentally, for the opportunity that you gave me to be on your incredible podcast, Confident Communications last week, uh, Julie and I both were able to appear on your show to speak on coronavirus communications tips. And you included others who I closely follow as well, like Jared Mead, Michelle Garrett, Stephanie Elsie. Thank you for that, because you're clearly being so collaborative and sort of this all ships rise kind of uh, mentality. Thank you for that. Please tell our listeners more about your practice, Molly, initially here. 
Well, I, I come to this practice by way of being a military spouse for a number of years. And I went to graduate school in Boston at Boston University at the time where the internet was starting. So I immediately was honed into the power of the internet. And at that time, when I graduated, moved to Washington, D.C., and one of my first jobs was with the cruise industry, and two huge crises that I dealt with, 9-11, and also, ironically, you know, the first neurovirus attack on cruise ships. This was back in you know early 2000. And so I understood how you had to message on a dime because there was no book that said, what do you do when there's a virus on a cruise ship? And since then, I also worked for FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. I worked out of headquarters in public affairs. My job was to help with the post-Hurricane Katrina recovery, not just in terms of on the ground, but the reputation of it. And again, I tapped into my knowledge that I learned at Boston University in the comm program was bringing the internet. And at that time, social media was just starting to creep around. I noticed that the press was against FEMA. The public was against FEMA. The public opinion could not be worse. But I knew from working with people on the ground, the victims, and Mary Beth, I ended up going out to Tennessee in the mountains where they had tornadoes just like they did this past February. And I had an idea. I said, I'm going to take a backpack. I want a camera, a video camera, and I want to film the people who appreciate FEMA and what we do. Yeah. I filmed interviews, created documentary, turned them into little micro videos that turned into social media. So I originated and thought of kind of creating the social media for FEMA about taking the power into the hands. And now since then, my business now, I'm in New England. I am a consultant on public relations, but my my angle, my bailiwick is helping leaders and businesses understand the power of social media to use it to their advantage, but also not to do anything that could have it destroy them. Bravo. I mean, wow, what a career. <laughs> That's I know. Just and, yeah. and what appropriate experience to bring to this conversation relative to all this crisis communication and crisis management background that you have. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've learned a lot just hearing, I, I thought I knew about your background, but there's some things you mentioned here that were really insightful. So just so glad that you're with us. And Julia, I've been following you a bit longer, actually, because I think we had crossed paths on LinkedIn starting several years ago where we mutually started following each other. I'm sure because we were both posting some interesting stuff at the time as we are wont to do on different observations of things going on in our industry. I've loved how you keep tabs on what's going well and what's not from a professional practice standpoint in our profession, it helps to learn by observing what others are doing, most especially now. So please tell us more about your career and your work. Yeah, thank you for asking, and I'm happy to. Yes, I've always been an early adopter of technology, so I feel like I've used social media for a million years now. And you said earlier the phrase, and and you and Molly have both been really good at this, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we're all sort of in this together. And I love that about the community that we've built mm-hmm. via social media, and I have that community. Um, I think it's easy. We're in public relations. We're in communications. It's easier for us to connect and build those communities. Probably not every industry has it um, as easy as we do. But also, you very nicely pointed out how I like to, um, I think you said, keep tabs on our industry. (laughs) (laughs) I use that term loosely. (laughs) (laughs) That's very nice of you. Because I have gotten, I've received a couple of complaints 
about my very stark sort of negative portrayal of the public relations industry. And I do it with an absolute love of my profession. I've done this for 25 years. It's been my life. It's the only work that I can do. So I in no way want to degrade or denigrate what we do, but I also have an understanding of learning styles and building communities and building cultures. And people don't learn necessarily by the warm, fuzzy stuff. Yeah. So if I could put, post a beautiful quote about PR being warm and fuzzy and lovey, <laughs> and that would stop all the bad PR. Puppies, lots of puppies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's a puppy doing PR. Don't send bad pitches. If that works, then that's what I would do. But people learn by absorbing often. This is why we have horror movies scary, difficult, traumatic scenarios, and then placing themselves in those scenarios and subconsciously or consciously saying, gee, how would I survive that? Or how would I um, escape that? Or how would I get through that? So on on a much lower level, I'm trying to do some social group learning about really what should be best practices. And the thing that, and you and I, Mary Beth, talk about this frequently, I feel like our profession could do so much to elevate our trust levels, our ethical codes, and we could really rise to the occasion of where I believe communication should be, which is to have a seat at the table. And so I came to that understanding after years of working. I've worked for government agencies and elected officials. I've worked in large national and international corporations, and I've worked for large agencies. And so where I'm at now is I feel like I really understand public relations. And so I know it well enough and love it enough. And I've demonstrated that through blood, sweat, and tears that I can now advocate for the things that need to change in our profession. Which is great. And yeah. Yeah. If I was entry level, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that, that somebody might not hold that against me. Um, <laughs> they might. But yes, I'm really not trying to be mean. I'm really advocating for best practices. And um, so, yes, I do spend a lot of time online trying to do that. Right, right. I think that one of the reasons I feel like you're a kindred spirit to me is obviously, and we've talked about this on this podcast some, is that I have been an advocate for public relations being at its highest and best use. And that means pushing back on individuals who are going with lowest common denominator. And yeah, you don't exactly make friends when you're criticizing someone else's approach or someone else's work product. And I don't go at it with a a sense of trying to be a bull in a china shop necessarily, but I do, I mean, I'm with you. I think you do have to be bold sometimes in calling out Mm -hmm. things that are Mm -hmm. not going well, but anyway. And and Julia, what you said about PR professionals having a seat at the table. That's something that we've talked about several times on this podcast about how many disastrous scenarios it could prevent if we were given the seat at the table that we deserve all the time. And that's one of the reasons Mary Beth and I really wanted both of you on this episode is because we think you're both such astute followers of best practices. And in the new normal of COVID-19, everyone is trying to watch what everyone else is doing so they can avoid the missteps and not be the dreaded brand making these huge avoidable mistakes. And this crisis has so many layers to it. It's probably not going away anytime soon and impacts so many stakeholder groups, every stakeholder group. 
So I'd love to find out from each of you, what are some things brands are doing correctly right now and communicating about COVID-19? And what are some things they're doing wrong or even catastrophically wrong? And Julia, let's start with you. Okay, great. Well, I am famous for pointing out what people are doing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we started with you. That totally makes sense. Let's segue. And again, yeah, let's learn from it. Let's highlight it. We have a lot of younger entry-level one-person armies trying to navigate PR and communication. So let's show them, by example, what works and doesn't work. So my favorite one that is not working right now is WeWork which I love that name. It makes me laugh every time because they don't work in any category. (laughs) So I just can't understand and I've asked for help because I cannot wrap my mind around this going public with $100 a day bonuses to get employees back in to their very social, not convenient for social distancing, very close, non-controllable environments during a pandemic. And Mm -hmm. these are in not locations maybe where there's a low level of the outbreak or they're managing the outbreak. These are locations like New York. So I don't understand this organization. They're always in the news for all the wrong reasons. So clearly they have walked away from the public relations best practices table a long time ago. But this is one where I'm just I just can't see whatever they're trying to do. They possibly think they're helping employees by paying them to be in dangerous situations. I'm not sure, but that's an example of just it's not working. They don't understand the concern that the broader community has about this. We don't want our friends and neighbors going to co-working environments with people they don't know. They can't force them to wash their hands and then coming back into our communities to bring this very contagious viral disease with them. Yeah. And so this is just incredibly tone deaf on a public relations, public engagement scale. And then the poor employees, I can't even imagine what those people are facing because they're not high-level executives. $100 a day is a ton of money. And so they're being bribed. It's a huge carrot that's dangling out there. And so they're putting their employees in a very awkward position of risking the health of themselves and their families and their community for money. It's just very unsavory all across the board. I agree. And, you know, we work, they're always in such dense population locations, and they will also charge your American Express, by the way, when (laughs) when they say, oh, your American Express business, Platinum, whatever, have a free membership, and then they have your card number, and you say, sure, I'll have the free membership, and then they start charging you. So I'm not a fan either Mm. on any level. Mm -hmm. But Molly, what are your thoughts on what's working and, and what's not right now, or what brands are? Well, I have to say, as as someone who knows, someone who works, I spoke alongside of someone who works inside of WeWork and know that I think it illustrates one of the problems with communications that what's happening on the outside may not be a shared value system of someone who's trying to fight the good fight from the inside. So part of the problems that I see are this disparate value system between leaders and the workers. I always like to default that communicators, that their mission, that their heart is in getting the information out as quickly, as accurately, you know, as they can. But sometimes there is that massive disconnect. As it relates to COVID-19, 
you know, I love, I'm, I'm just like Jules. Like I love tracking bad PR and I like tracking bad leadership, bad talking points when we spot it. What I'm noticing and what Jules talked about is, is when they have mixed motives, they want to, they want to communicate that they are, you know, that they care about their employees, they care about the, they care about what's happening, yet they're forcing their employees come to work. And where you see it on display are in two places. One in marketing. Some companies aren't quite understanding. They want to take advantage of the time. Like a lot of stay-at-home workers. So you'll see a lot of subscription-based companies, in-home exercise, coffee. Like they're, they're not mentioning that they're marketing for this reason. I think the companies that come right out and say, we understand why you're home. Could we be of support? But when they don't, when they don't include that into messaging, that's when I notice that there is a problem. If you spend a little time, I have teenagers, so I spend time on TikTok now. I have to see what <laughs> yeah. Generation Z is doing. If you watch TikTok, it is video after video after video of some Gen Z or millennial sitting in an office by themselves working because some boss is making them sit there and keep the lights on during the quarantine and during these um, shutdowns. And that is what brings people down where they don't realize it. It starts with the people who have technology in their hands. They can become the most powerful messenger of your business and you may not even know it. I watch these TikToks and I think, I guarantee you, the CEO of that business has no idea that this 21-year-old is now doing a t- you know doing TikTok based on how they're stuck in this, you know, this job. So that's one of the props I've noted. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, what are some ways that we as PR professionals can help our management teams, our employee bases as well, and even our communities fight fear? I mean, this is something that I've really been trying to examine and get my arms around because I think it's a real thing. And I, I mean, I ask that question because I think that fear has this way of undermining everything that we as humans have within our control to do, you know, to get through this long running episode, come out the other side of it. When fear takes hold of a CEO or a a management team, for example, they invariably get paralysis from analysis. And Molly, this is one thing I was talking about on your podcast episode the other day, Mm -hmm. um, this, this idea of inaction. Really, it causes more harm than anything when you're sort of this deer in the headlights. So two weeks ago, I think we were seeing a ton of that, a lot of inaction because some management teams that if they had really never had a crisis plan in place before, and let's just put it right out on the table, most do not, or at least not to the Mm -hmm. the level to deal with something like we're dealing with right now. But when most companies by now, they've been forced to act at this point, at least in some measure. So what are your thoughts on the role that fear plays and how we can help to overcome it. So Julia, let's start with your ideas on that. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Early in the crisis, which feels like three years ago, early March, I wrote a piece with Jocelyn Brandeis for a PR publication about CEOs leading the way through coronavirus. The situation has changed even since that piece three weeks ago. Yeah. But we we're seeing what was happening, and we were um, we both had the same vantage point of, yes, this is probably a health crisis and an economic crisis, but this is going to be a culture and um, employee and communications crisis. And so what do CEOs need to know as this is unfolding? And so I have a phrase, something that I talk about a lot, called having the difficult conversations. 
Mm-hmm. And this is what managers and executives and experts are so bad at doing, and I don't understand it, but acknowledging from the beginning, from the get-go, this is going to be a difficult conversation. This is going to be difficult for me. This is going to be difficult for you. And then dot, 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 whatever follows after that. And there's something about, and, you know, I'm not super hippy-dippy about putting everybody in that place of acknowledgement and that place of authenticity and that place of transparency that, no, we're not glossing over this. No, we're not even going to try to pep talk our way out of it. We are going to sit and acknowledge that we as a team, organization, company, whatever, are facing a crisis. And that, to me, is the first step of any crisis plan. And what happens is people want to go from not being in a crisis to managing the crisis. And there's a step in there called acknowledging the crisis. That, this is such yeah. an incredibly good yeah. point. I mean, mm-hmm. I think here in the South, we call it the coming to Jesus meeting. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yes. like, let's, let's yes. just get our arms around this and uh, and call it what it is and be on the, that same page for excellent observation, Jules, really. I mean, that's that is on Thank point you. for sure. Molly, what about your experience on that point? Yeah, I, I think this supports what Jewel just said is, you know, when I tap into crisis management, I can easily go back to, you know, my days working at FEMA. What I've always learned is, you know, people aren't afraid of the unknown necessarily. They're afraid of the known coming to an end. In other words, oh. I used to have electricity. Now I don't. I used to have a job. Now I don't. So what leaders need to do, what companies need to do, is they have to replace the fear of the unknown with information. And that goes a long way in managing expectations. So just I'm thinking, you know, disaster management. If someone loses power, they will be able to handle someone telling them you will not have power for three weeks over we don't sure we're not sure when it's going to come back on. So people are resilient. People can handle the tough stuff, but what they can't handle is when people don't tell it to them or when people don't share it. So leaders, and it's a natural reaction to not scare. We don't want our we don't want to um, we don't want to scare our customers. We don't want to scare our investors away. We don't you know. So we're just going to keep the information to ourselves. Mm-hmm. But it's very counterintuitive. You the more information you put out there, the safer you know in the crisis sense you will be. Because people need information, they thrive on it. I think that is such a, a valid point as well. And it is that fine line between how do we manage and our elected officials in particular manage release of information in service to the public and this idea, for example, the financial markets and the stock market, which is, of course, so knee-jerk reaction anyway. I mean, anything that's get gets stated the markets, you know, the financial markets can react on a dime that are sometimes in in ways that are not really logical necessarily. And I think in the early stages, like a month, six weeks ago, and particularly, I guess, about a month ago, before things really started getting very serious here in the U.S. about the situation, there was just this worry about, oh, if we say too much, then the stock market will go, go down. As, mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of that paradigm is starting to change in a really interesting way. 
Yeah, it is. And I have a huge question for both of you. Could COVID-19 actually be public relations, big shining moment of truth to demonstrate leadership and make an impact like we've never had before? Could this be our time to come through in the clutch and finally prove our worth and our values so that it isn't questioned anymore or relegated to an afterthought? If so, are we as the profession performing to that level during this crisis, at least among the majority? Molly, what are you seeing out there? Do you think PR is getting a thumbs up in this crisis or do we still have a long way to go? Well, I've always appreciated your work at Mary Beth, the work that you do and Jules about accountability. And you make it abundantly clear how important it has it, it is to have that in our profession. And I've always admired it, accountability and transparency. And how I look at it, too, is just in the, I guess my lens is leadership. So it's not as much of a brand, but I I speak to the person behind it. But look no further than like a Governor Cuomo. Right. Who someone, you know, maybe a year ago, the news stories about him were, were people in his office that were being charged for unethical behavior, right? And now all of a sudden he's the shining star because he's coming out and telling the truth. Well, our brands and our profession and public relations, I feel, is just the same. I feel that any public relations practitioner or any business that values communications, as Jewel says, if they have a seat at the table, those are the organizations, those are the communicators that are going to be able to not only handle this crisis, but adjust from it and grow and become better and be prepared for the next crisis. The people that you hear speaking, the quotes that you hear, the polls quotes, what you see on Twitter, or see polls in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, those are the ones that tend to survive it because they're willing to take the sacrifice to step out there because they're not hiding anything. It's the ones who aren't speaking. Those are the ones that you have to be nervous about. So any public relations professional, practitioner, advisor, if you're hearing from them or they're behind a leader that you hear from, then they're on the right path. Right. Julia, you've had a lot to say about some bad PR operators out there in recent weeks, and <laughs> we just talked about a few. Um, like bad PR pitches and tone-deaf messaging, you call it out. How much work do we have to do to course correct as a profession? Well, I think. I'm not as optimistic as you are. Yes, this is the shining moment of truth where PR can demonstrate leadership and make an impact, like you said. So that is best case scenario, and that's what should be happening. And we are seeing that in large organizations, communications teams likely working behind the scenes to put those brands out front, to have the reasonable responses, to have those CEOs. I wanted to do a shout out to a place called Texas Roadhouse. Never been there. Can't wait to Mm -hmm. go. But that CEO is donating back his salary and his bonus to keep his employees employed during the pandemic. So I imagine there was some PR support behind that, getting that message out and communicating it to all the people, not only who work at those dining establishments, but all of those customers. I don't think that on at the lower level, so entry-level agency or less than professional experience practitioners or agencies. So we have Edelman, we have the huge global agencies. They, of course, have totally wrapped their minds around trust and education and communication and are being leaders for their clients. But the midsize and the regional agencies, which a lot of our profession is in those categories, are just stumped. And so I'm seeing a ton Mm -hmm. 
of bad media pitches, trying to associate total random products to coronavirus. I'm seeing a ton of missteps in measuring the tone and the feeling of media right now is, you know, oh, we're back to business as usual. No, no reporter at any outlet is back to business as usual. And it Mm -hmm. makes me, I start getting a little grumpy. And that's when you start seeing those snarky tweets because as PR leaders, somewhere there's an experienced PR person in a leadership role who's letting this happen under their watch. And I really can't condone that. So I'm not blaming the practitioner who sends the poorly timed media pitch. I'm blaming the leadership of that organization for either caring more about profits, they're putting profits over people, or not doing the hard work of communicating the truth and the reality to their clients. So their clients are getting the short end of the stick, their employees are getting the short end of the stick, and that's a style of PR that I can't condone, that I see too much. And one that Julia, I had to jump in that she noted right away, is we almost forgot about it because of the virus, is when a PR agency crafted a survey about people not buying Corona beers. And the fact that that was from a PR agency is the word that kicked off a horrible trend at the very beginning. I shouldn't say a trend, but it, it really tainted the profession right at the beginning of this entire crisis. And they give a horrible name to PR with that. Yeah, why yeah. would anybody think that's a good idea? We've, in our practice, had to adapt on a daily basis because we've had pitches that were about to go out that we had to completely table or change the entire message because it wasn't relevant or it wasn't sensitive to what's going on. And I think that you're right there, that there's a lack of sensitivity sometimes that can be taught or maybe it's just not being taught. Right. And one of those industries is the tourism industry is one really good example. I mean, here you have Hilton Hotels closing pretty much across the board, I think. An entire industry being, I mean, let's just say it, it's being decimated as we as we speak mm-hmm. here. And tourism across the board and a lot of different other hospitality aspects, certainly the attractions, all of that. I mean, the the follow-on impact of the economy, I mean, it's a whole other podcast or a whole other conversation. But, you know, when those are your clients, you do feel so much pressure to want to help them and to, and I think our knee-jerk reaction is, let's change the narrative in some way, or let's, and you kind of go to that fallback position of, okay, let's put on our body armor here and, you know, go into this battle with, something uplifting or something. But that is awfully hard to do when we are dealing with public health mandates. And I think it does become an ethics question too, that you're having to force the client to ask, can we put forward this message and still be balancing the public good as to what call to action we are asking the public to take or customers to take? And It's very tough. And I I think that one of the big questions is leadership. As a profession, are we exerting some leadership and a leadership voice in how we're leading not not just our teams, but helping lead our clients? You know, it, it has to be a fundamental, are we doing the right thing? 
kind of question. But 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 you know, too, that's subjective. What's the quote the right thing to some people from a business continuity perspective versus what is quote the right thing from a public health perspective, those two things are butting heads right now in a way that I'm not sure that we've ever seen. I mean, we've just never seen this. I think it's going to get increasingly worse. I mean, we have to often make the decision with our clients uh, who have an idea that they want us to push out there, and we don't think it's a good idea or ethically the right idea. And then we have to say no to the money at a time when we really need the money. Mm-hmm. But you got to do it. But you <laughs> I mean, got to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You you can't. Yeah, you right, can't. Right. Uh, you know, you can't be hypocritical in that way. Uh, what do you ladies have to say about those observations? Well, I, you know, just to take on quickly, I think in terms of the mindset too, um, Maribel Kelly, you had mentioned, you know, the hospitality industry, and and so far today we've talked about a lot of these big brands. The big brands are helmed by big leaders with big CEO packages, and they're we're, they're showing authentic leadership in many cases, going you know salaries. But where we do a lot of our business, and where I do a lot of our business, are small to medium sized businesses that are dying. And yeah. a client that I have in the hospitality industry, you know, owns ten hotels, is losing fifty thousand dollars a day, and said if this goes on until May seventh, this multi millionaire will be broke. And so the question that comes to someone like that is not about, can I do something unethical, you know, in terms of, am I, you know, am I breaching that is, is how do I stay in business? And in my role, it wasn't about, okay, how do we pitch things? It was, okay, operationally, should you, should you pivot and become a hospital? Like, what could yes. you do, you know, to stay in business? So I, I, I do think when we talk about PR and we look at lessons learned and what we should do, we can certainly look at the brand for ideas and inspiration and to instill confidence in us. But I'm in the business of the small to medium size where their playing field is a little bit different because they're living just for survival. So it's a question of how do we keep the lights on? And that's why I think public relations is so critical because we're helping them communicate to their key stakeholders, which of course is their employees, but also their customers, their communities. How can we rally people to come in and keep our lights on and keep supporting us? So that's like a message that I find that I'm working with. Um, Jules, how about you? Yeah, um, I agree, agree, agree to everything that you said. And yes, there's a huge focus on big brands, national, international companies. And most of our economy is not driven by those. And like we look at the stock market and shareholder value and all of that. But what percentage is what is really considered a small or medium-sized business? And those, those are the people in our communities and maybe at a more local level, maybe state level or regional level will have a more drastic impact on our local economies. What I would say is that I hope organizations take from this that it is possible to prepare for a crisis. Now, somebody said something to me on social media early on that, oh, we would have never guessed this would happen. Okay, you're right. You're not, we didn't guess that it was going to be called coronavirus and it was going to be associated with corona beer. No, but we know that crises happen. It will happen. It will continue to happen. And there is a way to prepare for uncertainty. No, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So, do you have business planning? And this goes back to like Molly said, operations, Mm -hmm. 
as part of communication, are you running scenarios of worst case scenario, whether it's your industry, whether it's a natural disaster, where it's, whether it's a health issue like we're experiencing now? I hope that organizations take from this, the ones that survive, we can do a better job of anticipating a crisis and role-playing or planning or building scenarios as to how we might respond in a variety of situations. I hope that's a takeaway from this. Yeah, I agree. Well, mm-hmm. final question. One of the big picture things that continues to strike me every day in this COVID-19 crisis is the idea of our shared humanity. And these days, it's coming out in all its forms, I guess, positive and negative. I see a lot of people invoking humor in social media, which can be a great coping mechanism, but it sometimes is really misunderstood. I think sometimes the humor really falls flat if people view it as tasteless or insensitive. That particularly happens, I think, when brands try to invoke humor because it's viewed as overly commercial and a real ick factor. Just in recent days, I saw where McDonald's had separated the arches as a social distancing kind of, and and it was maybe kind of getting some cheers or jeers, depending. I think it was sort of a mixed bag as these things always are, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Other times I'm seeing what appear to be some all out expressions of fear by people and things that they post. I mean, that's tough to see. I mean, some people are really struggling in a big way. And it seems that PR experts, we have to be that 24-7 filter of everything. It's easy to be, it's not easy rather, to be pitch perfect in every message to every audience. So what do you see as the PR role to help our clients and brands remain connected best with people of the world who are in all kinds of pain and angst right now? How do we make our brands human and real and authentic in that respect in times of shared crisis? So Julia, what are your thoughts? Well, I'll go back to what I said previously about not skipping that acknowledgement step, that come to Jesus moment that we laughed about, or really authentically acknowledging this is a difficult conversation. And so difficult time, this is different, whatever, fill in the blank words, but acknowledging the difficulty of it. One thing that I read recently from Edelman was even now during this pandemic, part of their trust barometer showed that most people find their employer to be their most credible source of information, which surprised me, second to mainstream news organizations. Wow. So one thing I would say for brands to remember now, if you are have not been in the habit of building a culture of communications, if you had not previously engaged your employees on that level of emotional sort of EQ communication styles, they might be suffering now because they are, and this has been documented with a study, looking to employers for direction because it directly impacts employment. So it's not a personal matter. It's a personal matter that is tied to employment. So organizations really have an opportunity to become that caregiver and that leader for their organizations, and employees want it, but they don't know how to ask for it. And in terms of, I would ask organizations, um, if I could, to not be so concerned with external communications right now why they feel a need to post something humorous on social media 
or I know they want to be part of the conversation or they don't want to be left behind, but nobody's going to remember that, oh, I didn't get enough supportive tweets from XYZ brand during coronavirus, but you risk being remembered for the off-color or the tone-deaf social media message. So knowing when to be quiet and knowing when to step away from the limelight is infinitely more important than knowing how to jump into the fray. And so my recommendation is all that energy and creativity, and if you're feeling humorous or dark or whatever, pivot that towards your employees and your internal stakeholders who need that attention right now. And it doesn't really matter what your social media followers think. And of course, if you have a brand that's very consumer and you are really engaged with your social media followers, maybe, but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing the random ones. Right. Turn it inward. Use that energy for your employees and your internal stakeholders. Even all the retailers that were getting COVID-19 updates from, I'm like, I, I don't really need one from Brooks Brothers or Lululemon. You know, it's just every single company feels the need to say something. And I think what you just said yeah. is brilliant about knowing when to be quiet is just as important as knowing yeah. when to jump into the conversation. Yeah. And I, I love what you've said here, Jules, about the um, role of the employer in general in terms of that source of information for employees. And I'll boil that down too to a, a little bit more of a micro level. Internal communications, research has always shown that employees most value what's coming to them from their immediate supervisor. So we always talk about the role of the CEO and how important it is for that CEO to be the owner of the messaging on behalf of the brand. But we can't lose sight of, especially in larger scale organizations with a real hierarchy and so many supervisors over so many staff and team members, the role of the supervisor to take ownership of their own communication for their own team is also so very important too. So I'm, Julie, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Molly, what are your thoughts on, along those lines? You have to look at business from an essential and a non-essential business right now. I mean, because everyone has been labeled, you know, one or the other. I think it's a balance. You have to balance the exposure of your business. You want to keep the business running. You want to serve your customer. You want to serve your community by staying afloat. But at the same time, you have to balance the impact of the business with the human impact inside, just as Julia said, look inward. The businesses right now, the organizations and companies who are showing care and concern for their employees and by extension, their employees' families, those are the ones who I think are messaging properly. Uh, Jules is correct. You don't want to spend as much effort into the funniest tweet or the perfect meme or sharing some cute graphic when you could be communicating to your internal stakeholders. Again, it's all about managing expectations. You want to manage the expectation of the business. You want to keep it running. A lot of businesses right now are operating on the edge day by day by day. The unemployment, filing for unemployment, record numbers right now. We need to show all, our, our communicating, our response should be a more altruistic response. How can we help our business by helping our, our employees and by helping our customers and communicating with them? It's all about the human impact, I feel. From, from this point, for the next few weeks, definitely about the human impact. Great points. Just excellent. 
Thank you so much for your time today and for being with us. I know you're both very busy, and it means a lot that you took time out to spend with us today and share your wisdom. It's been an amazing conversation. I know we definitely want to have you both back on in the not-too-distant future. I have to say to you both, you've been really great sources, not only of wisdom, but just inspiration. And I think as a, as a public relations professional community, when you can find true leaders and people who are willing to put themselves forward to offer assistance to you know, the larger community, you found some, some very special individuals. And I count among those individuals, both of you. So thank you very much for today. And I can say that means so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a pleasure. And it's, it's the thing that I love to talk about and it's the thing that I'm most passionate about. And so just being invited and asked to join the conversation means a lot. And I love supporting you guys and I'm happy to do it. Can't wait to come back. Thank you so much. Stay healthy and stay safe. Both of you. Yeah. Oh, you you too as well. well. Thanks. Thanks, Mary Beth. Thank you. Bye. Great. Listeners, you can follow our guests today, Molly McPherson, at Molly McPherson on Twitter, and also be sure to tune in to her incredible podcast, Confident Communications. It's just a fantastic listen, and she is uh, very insightful on that. Be sure to follow her there. And also, our friend Julia, you can follow her at Julia Anglin PR. And she also hosts the hashtag primetime PR chat, which you can tune into as well on Twitter. And to our listeners, you can connect with us on Twitter as well. Please follow Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can follow me at Mary Beth West and of course, Kelly at KD Fletcher. We'll respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Don't miss our Twitter chats on the last Wednesday of each month using the same misinterpreted hashtag. We love having dialogue with you all and all of our growing base of followers. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Please stay well. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 